welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, this is Phil Ford. An explanatory note about the conversation you're about to hear. JF and I have actually been recording some of these conversations for a few months now, and we recorded this one back in September, not long after the mysterious conjunction of two separate events. One, the finale of David Lynch's third season of Twin Peaks, an event that both of us greeted with a great deal of excitement. And also, a much less enjoyable occasion, North Korea's detonation of its then-largest-ever nuclear device. An interesting coincidence, or if you like, synchronicity, given that the detonation of the first-ever nuclear device, the Trinity Bomb, is a major plot point in the new season of Twin Peaks. So with all of these thoughts swimming around in our heads, we decided to have a conversation that we titled Garmin Bosia. Now, Garmin Bosia is a word from the Twin Peaks canon, which means pain and sorrow. And it's a very particular kind of pain and sorrow, seasoned liberally with fear. And we're using this term from a fictional universe to denote something in the very real world that we live in, because, as surprising as this may seem, Sometimes it's a fictional map that turns out to be the best guide to the so-called real world. Garmin Bosia. So. Garmin Bosia. Garmin Bosia. Uh, For me, I mean, this is something we've been talking about for a while. and it really all came together for me when I read those blog posts you wrote. I think it was 2014, called uh, The Cold War Never Ended. And what I liked yeah. about those posts is that they were, they were, they were expressing something that's, that may have seemed strange at the time, uh, but that feels almost obvious today. Today, there have been New York Times pieces written recently about how the Cold War has just started up again because of increased uh, because of the you know the Russian meddling into the U.S. elections because of this the the current uh, situation with North Korea the revival of nuclear fear all these things that we thought in a sense we'd put away have suddenly sprung up on us again so there's something really prescient about those posts you wrote. But it went a little deeper than that. You weren't just commenting on global affairs. You were talking about something a little bit more existential. And, and maybe we can start there and work our way towards uh, the main theme of our show from there. Because when we talk about the Cold War, we talk about North Korea, we talk about Russia and the USA, we talk about the situation. What is it? What's, what's the thing that, what's the heart of it? What's the core of it? What, what's the thing that's undergirding this situation, right? What is yeah. this all about in the end? Why is the Cold War different from other types of war? What makes the Cold War and what it represents a unique and singular kind of event in history? 
Well, one of the things I wanted to point out is that saying the Cold War is back is not quite the same thing as saying that it never ended. And the feeling that we have now, seeing the slang and match between Donald Trump and the North Korean leadership, that feels like, oh, God, it's just like the 80s all over again, or just by this, like the 70s, whatever. But it's also... What I'm playing with is an idea that actually is a little bit more occult, and it's a little bit more like an idea that Philip K. Dick articulated. Uh, Philip K. Dick liked to say, the empire never ended. And actually, he said that because he had a dream once that he was paging through old issues of astounding stories, looking for the rarest story of them all. And it was a story called The Empire Never Ended, and in his dream, he had to find it. And if he did, it would tell him the secrets of the universe. And on waking, he found this phrase resounding in his head, and he couldn't let it go and couldn't drop it. And he came to put a lot of weight on it. And he believed, well, he, he believed a lot of things, right? And the, his beliefs followed fast upon each other, always canceling each other out. So it's actually hard to say what Philip K. Dick really believed. But one idea is pretty consistent. It's the idea that time is an illusion created by some malign entity, some blind, mad creator god, a demiurge, created time to baffle and confuse us, or to use PKD's favorite word, to occlude us. And his idea was that actually time is an illusion. We are actually living at about 70 years after the birth of Christ. And all of the 2,000-odd years that have intervened between then and now, it's basically an illusion, an illusion that's part of this oppressive structure he calls the Black Iron Prison. Anyway, you can learn a lot about what Philip K. Dick thought and his sort of strange theophanic experiences that he had in 1973-74. There's a big fat book edited by Jonathan Lethem and others uh, that are selections from his notebook project, The Exegesis, where he gets into this. I'm not really going to talk about Philip K. Dick's uh, treatment of the idea, but I'm going to borrow something from it, which is the idea that there is some hidden malign force that's kind of putting the whammy on us. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's baffling us, it's tricking us into thinking that situations are changing, that the Cold War, for example ended and has been succeeded by new geopolitical challenges. But what if it is in fact the case that the Cold War never ended? And when I say the Cold War, this is getting back to your question, like what's really at the heart of this thing? If by Cold War we mean the specific geopolitical situation that obtained between the capitalist West, particularly the United States, and the communist East, particularly the Soviet Union, then yeah, obviously that situation ended decades ago. If we're talking about armed standoff between hostile countries, obviously that has never gone away and probably never will. But the particular thing I'm thinking of is this kind of fear, this subjective feeling that people had on a mass scale, a certain kind of fear, special flavor of fear associated with the Cold War. And what I wanted to play with in this series of blog posts is the idea that that fear never ended, that it's that fear that's actually the motive force. It's, the, it's what's driving this bus. Right. And what I like about when you talk about the fear, 
uh, in the blog post and in our our exchanges leading up to this to this recording, it's a, it's a very like you said it's a very special kind of fear. We're not talking about fear in the general. We're talking about a particular kind of fear that comes that comes to the fore with the Cold War, right? Is this correct? Right. Uh, so so in a sense that that the Cold War brought a new archetype to the forefront of our lives so that it suddenly becomes a central uh, force. And so yep. how would you characterize this, this, this existential fear that, that, um, that marks the Cold War era and continues to affect us today? You know, the best articulation of it I've ever read is in Norman Mailer's essay, The White Negro. So Norman Mailer's The White Negro is an essay ostensibly about the hipster. But one of the things it's really about is this mass psychology of fear in the Cold War. He wrote this thing to try and wrestle to the ground like this nameless fear that he felt and that he knew was reflected in everybody he knew. The second sentence of it is really well known. It's like this long 208-word sentence, and I'm going to read it to you. And this, okay. to me, kind of nails it. All right. Probably we will never be able to determine the psychic havoc of the concentration camps and the atom bomb upon the unconscious mind of almost everyone alive in these years. For the first time in civilized history, perhaps for the first time in all of history, we have been forced to live with the suppressed knowledge that the smallest facets of our personality or the most minor projection of our ideas, or indeed the absence of ideas and the absence of personality, could mean equally well that we might still be doomed to die as a cipher in some vast statistical operation in which our teeth would be counted and our hair would be saved, but our death itself would be unknown, unhonored, and unremarked. A death which could not follow with dignity as a possible consequence to serious actions we had chosen, but rather a death by deus ex machina in a gas chamber or a radioactive city. And so if in the midst of civilization, that civilization founded upon the Faustian urge to dominate nature by mastering time, mastering the links of social cause and effect, in the middle of an economic civilization founded upon the confidence that time could indeed be subjected to our will, our psyche, was subjected itself to the intolerable anxiety that death being causeless, life was causeless as well. And time, deprived of cause and effect, had come to a stop. And I absolutely love that. It's powerful. It really nails something. Yeah, nails something about this fear, which is just sort of like, it, it's, it's this, it's, I don't know, it's something like existential fear, right? Or existential anxiety, the idea that, you see the world in its true colors as this fundamentally alien, objective thing that is indifferent to you and doesn't care about you. The world becomes absurd in the absence of meaning. Okay, so that's this sort of like existential nausea. But Garmin Bosia is, and I want to use the word Garmin Bosia to talk about this. This is a word from Twin Peaks, right? We're going to be using this term to designate this capital F fear um, because David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return, kind of I think is like the most beautiful and artistically satisfying representation of this idea of you know, like what kind of fear we're talking about. Right. Um, 
this 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 Garmin Bosia, what we're calling Garmin Bosia is more than that. It's the pain and sorrow and fear of humanity as it sees the universe revealed in its true indifference. Right. Like a police car pulls up to the front door and takes you away from everything you know and love. Or the sweet-faced daughter of a nice lady who works at the cafe has a druggy husband who beats her. And these are examples I've drawn from Twin Peaks, The Return. So... You know, it's individually for us hard to believe that any of this stuff can really happen to us, right? Until it does. And then when it does, well, now what? Like, what happened to all your plans, all your rational accounting, all your prudent planning? What happened to God's providence or that hot little thing you got going with Lady Luck? Well, that, like that's that's the key thing there when you mentioned God's providence, is that there's a difference between because some people could say, well, the fear uh, that we felt in the Cold War that we still feel today, because as you mentioned in your blog post, the f- nuclear fear has met- kind of metastasized into a fear of global uh, climate change, a fear of uh, um, meteorites hitting the earth, a fear of basically the fear of death has been um, amplified to such an extent that the difference is qualitative. It's become a fear of extinction. And there's a philosopher, Ray Brassier, who's a, he's a British philosopher. He's very interesting. He's a, he's a nihilist or a post-nihilist. But what he argues is that with the discoveries of modern science, there is no more, it's, it's not so much a question anymore of the possibility of extinction. The possibility of extinction is such that we have to speak now of the reality of extinction in the sense that humanity, in a sense, is doomed to extinction. And the implications of that for each individual are tremendous because what it means is that eventually you won't be even remembered, right? <laughs> like that that that, yeah. that it'll be as if nothing ever happened. That's kind of the the difference between. And I remember as a kid, uh, I got this Mysteries of the Unknown book, or I don't remember what it was. Oh yeah, there was a part about Nostradamus's predictions about the end of the world. And they weren't actually real verses from Nostradamus in this book. The author just made stuff up that he supposedly had written. And uh, <laughs> But when I read it, and it, it predicted the end of the world would come in 1999, I believe. And I, 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 I was eight or nine, and it filled me with this incredible panic. And I went to my dad. I was at the cottage, and I cried, and I, I couldn't. And I had already come to terms with death at that point. I knew I was going to die when I was nine. But I, the idea of extinction was worse than death. It was the idea that yeah. I would die, that my death didn't matter anymore because it happened without a context. It happened in a void. It happened in a world that could disappear. And uh, that was, uh, that's, I, I believe I've got my first experience of that existential fear that characterizes life in the Cold War. Um, of course, we have to ask the question, why, why does this fear come about in the Cold War? And that's kind of one of the central questions that, that David Lynch asks through Twin Peaks as well. well. Well, I think one reason as obvious is that this is the first time, once the Trinity bomb explodes, uh, once we have like proof of concept that this thing works, you know, in the, facing the possibility of your individual death is hard enough. But, you know, human beings are able to do that remarkably well, right? And Mm -hmm. that kind of gnosis where you really know, you know that you're going to die, that's a heavy thing, right? Most of us have a memory of that hitting us at some point. But what would it be like to hit the entire species, right? all human beings alive, with that awareness all at once? That 
to me is what the bomb does. It gives us a mechanism to understand exactly what you say, this um, uh, this kind of, this death without issue. It just happens and there's nothing left behind. No sad memory, no meaning to it. It just happens. There's no consequence to it. Um, there may be a reason for it, but we'll never find out what it is because we'll all be dead. Like, there's something about that, that puts a whole new kind of fear, like species-wide existential fear all at the same time. There's no recipe for that. There's no precedent for that. Right. It's almost like when we, we stopped at some point, stopped believing in apocalypse in the religious sense, and then we immanentized it we created it for ourselves in the theater of history through hiroshima and that yep. it's almost like we brought the heavens down to earth and there's this great line from arthur macon where um in one of in the story the white people uh where and the, the title has nothing to do with what we call white people today. <laughs> um, the white people are the, uh, the fairies or the strange uh, entities that, that inhabit the woodlands of England and, and the, the deep forests of the world. Uh, but in this story at the beginning, uh, a kind of amateur theologian tells uh, the, the main character or one of the main characters, he says to them, sin he, he talks about the reality of sin. He says, we've ceased to believe in sin, and this is a very serious matter because he says, sin is man's effort to obtain the knowledge that pertains only to angels. And it so happens that after the Trinity bomb test, Oppenheimer gave a speech at MIT, and in this speech he said, physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge they can never, ever forget. Mm -hmm. There's something about penetrating the core of the real and endeavoring to know what has always seemed transcendent, has always been out of the purview of man's uh, rights to know, and obtaining that knowledge and then utilizing it to, to basically split the atom and release this tremendous energy, the energy that powers the sun and the stars, and to try to harness that energy and control it. There's something about that that is so hubristic that it's almost a fall from grace, or at least that's how Oppenheimer saw it, that man fell from grace when he created that device. And he was the one in charge of it, right? It's a kind of taking heaven by storm thing. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, there's a, there's a thing in, um, not Lord of the Rings, but the prequel to that, what is it, The Silmarillion by right. Tolkien? right. Yeah, where I think part, I mean, it's been, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think part of his mythos is an idea of this lordly race of men who become consumed with visions of glory and want to basically overstep the limit placed upon them by their creator, which is that they're mortal, and they want to reach the western lands of immortality, and when they do, they end up destroying themselves. It's a pretty straightforward kind of mythic representation of exactly this. Right. The catastrophic uh, sort of Pandora's box unleashing of monsters from that profoundly misguided attempt to take heaven by storm. Yes, and it, it's, it goes way back. I mean, you can think of Prometheus, right? 
you know, we're not the first, we wouldn't be the first ones to comment or to characterize the modern scientific project as uh, profoundly Promethean. Um, I think it was Mary yeah. Shelley, subtitled Frankenstein, she, she called it Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. The idea that humanity could obtain the powers that had hitherto been reserved for the gods you know that you can't make that move without without it having serious consequences for history and for life on this planet Okay, so on September 3rd, 2017, there are kind of two notable events. One of them was the finale of David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return, the new season of Twin Peaks after a 27-year hiatus of that show. And the other event was a test of a hydrogen bomb, or at least what was claimed to be a hydrogen bomb, by North Korea an explosion of between 50 and 60 kilotons. So, JF, is this just a coincidence, or is this what we might call a synchronicity? I would opt for synchronicity, partly because David Lynch kind of forced us to do so when the, the poster released for the finale was a, f a photo of the Trinity nuclear explosion, or at least a recreation of it. It was a mushroom cloud. So... Again, uh, even though, like, so let's just, for people who either their memory's foggy or haven't watched the show, in episode eight of uh, Twin Peaks The Return, we suddenly cut to, to the Trinity bomb site, July 16th, 1945, when the first nuclear bomb was detonated in um, the New Mexico desert. And this has no direct connection to, at least no diegetic, no apparent connection to anything going on in the show. It's a total non sequitur that, that had a lot of people baffled when it happened in episode eight. And at, for the final episode, uh, they released a poster that, that brought this image back, almost telling us this is the central thing. This is the most important element here. This is the seed crystal of the whole thing. And it's like... It's weird because Twin Peaks never seemed to have a kind of historical conscience as a show. It seemed to happen in its own world, in the world of Twin Peaks. So I found that mm -hmm. quite interesting that they, he would suddenly just literally bombard us with an image from, uh, from history in the middle of a very surreal and fantastical show. What did you think of that moment? Well, it's funny because you can say, oh, there's a perfectly rational reason why he would have put the mushroom cloud on the poster or why Showtime would have put it on because that that episode, episode eight, already legendary episode eight of Twin Peaks, The Return, that had sort of blown everyone's mind because in it, Lynch had done all this sort of experimental filmmaking stuff, stuff that looked like you know, uh, Brackage or, or, or Maya Darren. I mean, like, 
classics of American experimental non-narrative film. And here we were seeing it on TV. And the Trinity Blast was, I guess, you could say the pretext or the, the setup for this extraordinary virtuoso experimentalism in film. So, you know, to some extent, that the notoriety of that sequence gave Showtime a ready, I don't know, a visual uh, cue for, for the, the finale. But I think that actually is on the money, that mo maybe the most extraordinary narrative turn in Twin Peaks The Return was the idea that all of this stuff that seemed to be happening in its own little hermetically sealed bubble, the little bubble of Twin Peaks, that all of that, in fact, is a, an aftershock of a cataclysmic event that had taken place several decades earlier. One of the things that's kind of interesting that's implicit in what you were suggesting is that by setting up the atom bomb as the almost the logo of the Twin Peaks finale and Twin Peaks itself, it's almost like an act of sympathetic magic that almost conjured a real-world event into being, this nuclear test from North Korea. Yes. I think there's a clear connection to, at least in my mind, between the experience the viewers had watching episode eight and seeing the bomb suddenly appear like that. And it's like reality just hits us like a ton of bricks all of a sudden. And that moment in, I don't believe, one of the first episodes where those two, the, that couple is watching that glass box in that strange, you know, yeah. uh, and in that warehouse, to, yeah, that warehouse, they're watching this thing and they're waiting for something to happen. And to me, it seemed obvious that this was a kind of metaphor for what the viewers were going through. We're watching a glass box waiting for something to happen. And the, right. it, it looked very much like a guy watching TV, right? The guy yeah. you know, observing this and what happens, but this monster shows up and busts through out of the box and, and, and kills him and his girlfriend. And this moment, um, to me seemed to be a kind of rehearsal for what happens in episode eight when reality suddenly intrudes into the show, kind of overwhelms the show and sucks the viewer in, in the most violent fashion. Because, in the most violent yeah, way possible. Right. Um, no, I got a question for you, JF. Yeah. So when you are suggesting that this coincidence, the appearance of the atomic bomb cloud on the promotional materials for Twin Peaks and the appearance of an atomic bomb cloud, we assume, somewhere on the other side of the planet in the real life, you're sort of suggesting there's almost a causal relationship or a magical relationship anyway that one causes the other. And I'm going to take the skeptical point of view here and say, like, is that something you really believe? Or is this a sort of, like poetic expression that uh, artistic types such as yourself are fond of the the link what is the link well if we if we talk about synchronicities um i it, it doesn't imply a causal link in the sense that we normally understand causality you know jung came up with the concept of synchronicity and he called it an a causal connecting principle the way i've always understood it is imagine you're walking through the woods and you happen to see some twigs uh, or a tree that's grown into the shape of, I don't know, your initials, P, F. So this tree 
looks like a P and then maybe there's another tree next beside it looks like an F and it looks like whoa that's and in the middle of this tree like between the two trees on the ground is a a gleaming red stone so you think wow these trees you know are set up in such a way as to get me to discover this stone well you you could argue that the trees grew into this shape just because just because it just so happened and that from this particular angle they look one looked like a P the other one looked like an F and this stone just happens to be there. You can argue that it just so happened that way, but you can't argue that there isn't a P and an F and a red stone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. in a sense, there's, there's the, the causal nexus of forces that brings about events for their own reasons, and then these events form effects that can't be reduced to the causes. So that's the way I see it. Like, it, does it matter that... It was just a sheer sheer coincidence that North Korea detonated their bomb on this day and that the, the episode came out, you know, the final episode played on that day. Well, in a sense, it's a coincidence, but the coincidence is meaningful. That's why we're picking it out. So Jung was just saying, pay attention to the meaning and forget about the fact that it's just a coincidence. Because on the one hand, you're getting more reality. You're getting more. You get to explore more. You get to figure something out. You get to explore a, a particular thematic or particular idea and on the other hand, you're just closing off doors and you're not allowing yourself to go to the places that reality is pointing you to. Another thing is, you know, when people say like, well, you know, that's just a metaphor, right? Right. Like, oh, you're just using, you're just using the Trinity explosion as a metaphor for something. You're, you're just using the Showtime materials and the, the timing of the Twin Peaks finale as a, and, and the, coincidence with the North Korean atomic test, that's just a metaphor for something. It's like, yeah, but there's no such thing as just a metaphor. I think metaphors are profoundly uh, powerful meaning-making things. They make meaning in the world. Right, exactly. And you can't subtract meaning from the world. That's one thing that's very clear. You can do it as an, abs yeah, as an abstraction. Try. You can do it as an intellectual exercise. But all you're doing is imagining a world you'll never experience. The world we experience is always signifying. There's always meaning. Um, even if, let's, I, my, you know, one go-to example I think of a lot is the scientist who wins a Nobel Prize, let's say, for proving that life has no meaning. You know, well, they go mm -hmm. pick up their prize and, you know, and, you know, they, they the point is that to get up and, and out of the, to get out of bed in the morning, you need to believe in some kind of meaning. And, um, and you could say, well, that's just the illusion of this and that. And we're just imagining meaning. We're just projecting meaning onto the world. Well, we'll never experience a world without that projection. It's inaccessible to us. It doesn't even make sense. So yeah, that, that's, um, that's something interesting. And it kind of goes against what we were saying earlier about the existential fear of, of uh, nuclear holocaust as a kind of uh, the proof, uh, kind of proof that the world has no meaning. But what it means to me isn't that the world has no meaning. It means that, the, that meaning is, is bigger than the human because it's, the idea of extinction is filled with meaning. It's filled, meaninglessness is filled with meaning. Because if the world is meaningless, mm. it means things for us. Like there's just no way to, to, to subtract the, the the consequence of the real for living beings from the equation of the real itself. So here I've got a question for you. 
what does the Trinity explosion mean in the world of Twin Peaks? Like, what does it let loose upon the world? Well, we get some answers in the show. Towards the end of the series, Gordon Cole, the FBI director played by David Lynch himself, reveals to his, to, uh, what's her, what's her name? His protege. I can't remember her name. Oh, Tammy. Tammy. Tammy Preston. Right. Reveals to Tammy that uh, he and Cooper and Jeffries, these three FBI agents, made a discovery at some point in the past that there was there was this entity active in the U in the U.S. this this ancient kind of god figure that they came to name Judy. I don't remember what the I think it was J. J. Dao or something like that. Zhao Day. Zhao Day, yeah. Zhao Day. And they, for short, they called her Judy. And that this entity had been around for a long time and that it was responsible for what Cole came to call the Blue Rose cases. So incidents where reality gets kind of scrambled up and things happen and the and these daemons, these entity, these these spirits come into break into our world and vampirize or feed off of our fear. So and in the in the Trinity um, sequence in episode eight, so we see the mushroom cloud and the camera slowly dollies right into the mushroom cloud, and then a few shots later we get this being emerging from the clouds. It seems, um, and it looks like this vaguely feminine god of some sort, and it's vomiting out what looks like the cream corn that represents Garmin Bosia in, uh, in, in Twin Peaks. We'll get to that in a second. But they're vomiting out the substance, and there are these bubbles, and one of these bubbles has the face of Bob. So the idea for me is that, that the Trinity explosion either woke up this ancient entity or gave it a new entry point into our world, and that she came in and then spawned these creatures that are responsible for the pain and suffering of the characters in Twin Peaks. So the idea is that much more than give us a reason to fear our own extinction, the Trinity explosion reopened or revived ancient forces that had maybe lain dormant for a time until then in the American landscape. There's this great line from Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs that always stuck to me. At one point, he writes, America is not a young land. It is old and dirty and evil. Before the settlers, before the Indians, the evil was there waiting. One of the things that I find interesting about that quote, I think it's cool, is how do you represent that sense of an ancient, sleeping, abiding evil that breaks into our world? You know, one of the things that everyone comments about with the now famous episode eight is how he's creating a new, uh, well, maybe not new, but it's certainly new to TV, a new cinematic vocabulary. And it's an old saw of modernist criticism that new kinds of thoughts, new kinds of experiences demand a new artistic vocabulary. And so I think you know, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear that some of the more experimental stuff that goes on in that episode is an attempt to give us a vocabulary, a way of expressing these things that lie very deep, very, very deep indeed, this idea of an ancient slumbering evil that breaks into history. Yes. And, and he does it. He's, he's a master of uh, creating uh, nonlinear forms of time. 
imaginal forms of time that where the past and the future and the present are mixed up together or interact in strange ways. Cinema is a perfect medium for exploring that, always has been, because cinema is a past that becomes present. And uh, Deleuze talked about cinema in terms of the time image. And the time image is the, an image of time in itself. That's what cinema becomes capable of. I would argue that all art is doing that to some extent. It's just cinema kind of revealed this essence of art to us because every new medium reveals something about art itself in all of its facets. So that, for example, once you've watched films, once you've acquainted yourself with the vocabulary of cinema, the basic kind of building blocks of what constitutes film, you then experience paintings differently. You experience novels differently. Every medium shows you something new about the imagine the imagination that is at work in all art. But... I also think that this idea of an ancient slumbering evil, obviously it didn't start with Lynch. And that brings us to an important, I think an important point was that some artists had foreseen the Trinity event in my mind before it happened. So I'm not saying that they actually saw a mushroom cloud, but I am saying that they described something like what happened in 1945. And I think in a sense, David Lynch distinguishes himself from some of his influences or some of the, uh, the writers and artists that we would, might associate with him by virtue of the fact that he, he is in the world after the cataclysm. He's a, he's a post-apocalyptic filmmaker. He's writing from within the nightmare that other writers saw coming. And one example, one famous example is H.P. Lovecraft, whose uh, story, The Call of Cthulhu, to me, reads like a prophecy of the nuclear bomb. I'll read the first paragraph of that story, which I think is incredibly prophetic. So here goes. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance amidst black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should journey far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful place therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and security of a new dark age. Is it, any, is it a coincidence that Cthulhu rises in the Pacific? You know? Hmm. Is it a coincidence that he describes the slow piecing together of dissociated knowledge, which is as accurate a way as you could describe the Manhattan Project, that he, he, he describes this as opening, opening up such terrifying vistas of reality? How else would you describe the sight of the mushroom cloud? And if you listen to what the physicists had to say about the moment when they saw the bomb explode, terrifying vistas of reality is, is pretty much captures what they say. Our frightful place therein, our frightful place within this terrifying vista. The fact that not only does it show our own contingency and the contingency of the planet itself, but it reveals to us that we can be the authors of the evil that destroys us. And finally, the choice between going mad from the revelation or fleeing from the deadly light, the way he describes it as a deadly light. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting to me that he would write that. Another example is Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, which I won't quote, but if you read it, there's this feeling that something is approaching, something, some game-changing event that will forever alter the course of human existence. 
And uh, I would argue finally that what we chose when we faced Trinity was to flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. And the new dark age is the consumeristic, entertainment-driven uh, world that we've inhabited since the Second World War. I mean, that's kind of a bold statement, but I think it could be backed up. Then that actually shows us maybe something that Lynch is doing in filming the Trinity sequence, in filming Twin Peaks The Return, which is that old modernist desire to wake us up, right? To snap us out of it. If I was adopting a kind of um, pre-standard kind of modernist line about what he's doing, this is new styles, new vocabularies, new forms of expression being created not only to express something that is resistant to all previous forms of expression. So we need new ways of expressing, you know, the, uh, the apocalypse, like a man-made apocalypse. Uh, it's not only expressing, it's also coming up with new languages to penetrate that increasingly thick callous that we're growing around our uh, moral and aesthetic sensitivities. Exactly, yeah. And one of the things that he does that with, and this is of particular interest to me as a uh, musician, or as a music historian, is how he does this with music and sound. So one of the pieces of music that is most associated with the new season of Twin Peaks is a classical composition, an avant-garde composition by Christoph Penderecki called Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. Now that sounds pretty thematically on the nose, right? But actually, the piece was originally called 8 Minutes 37 Seconds, which is a very 1960 modernist kind of thing to do. You know, there's a whole lot of compositions from around that time uh, with names like, you know, Construction in Three Movements and stuff like that. And obviously, Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima is a lot more catchy of a title. But the piece is could not be more perfect for Lynch's for Lynch's purposes because you know there's a thing that Lynch likes doing and has always liked doing this goes back to Eraserhead of using thick heavy basically immobile slabs of sound mass and sound mass is actually a term that's very often used to describe Penderecki's music mm. it's music that is sort of hanging out in the border between what we think of as music and what we think of as merely sound or even noise. Where instead of having melodies and harmonies for our ears and our minds to fasten onto, we have instead these large immobile blocks of sound that aren't particularly differentiated by pitch. So maybe it's just a cluster of pitches very close together, or they're pitches that are so low or high that that the pitches sound indistinct to us. Lynch loves these kind of like low aggregates, these sound aggregates hanging out in the bottom register of the sound spectrum. They're often described as, you know, menacing drones or, or, or uh, ominous hums or whatever. He loves those kinds of sound masses using modulations of intensity between these blocks of sound to create emotional, uh, just emotional effects or like, you know, effects in us that are really kind of unlike almost anything else. And the threnody to the victims of Hiroshima 
is famous as a piece of Penderecki came up with actually a whole form of notation to capture a music that doesn't consist of melodies and harmonies and, and, and even periodic rhythm, but rather these floating, amorphous masses of sound. I think it's interesting what you're saying because it shows us, I think, what, what is one of the central functions of art. Art is always exploring that liminal zone between order and chaos, between meaning and meaninglessness, always kind of pushing towards, that's how it creates new symbols, right? Because you can't create a symbol using ordinary signs. You have to reframe the signs in this new light that gives them this kind of alien allure, that, that moves them into a new space where they start to signify things they didn't signify before and therefore opens up a, a place for thought. And what happens with modern art is that there's this very explicit uh, search for the, the outer limits of, of meaning towards the meaningless. And some modernist artists would argue that art is meaningless and they're actually just expressing that meaninglessness. But I think they fail because insofar as their art has an effect, it generates new meaning for the for the audience for whom they they wrote the pieces, whether it's music or on or poetry or whatever, and I think that what happens is that Lynch is 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 exploring this territory and has to resort to this type of sound mass or these types of experimental techniques in order to express the images that that come to him, and this is what great artists have always done. And I would argue that it's not, you can't just split it. You can't just say, well, modernist art does this, but classical art doesn't. I think true art has always done it, but it's in light of the new stuff that we can re-envision re what was going on in some of the old stuff. For example, I've always thought that box music is always teetering on the verge of dissolution into chaos. And that's why it's so beautiful. And that's why it, it's so much stronger and more powerful than Muzak that's composed using the same principles he put into he put to work, but that doesn't it just reaffirms what we already think about the world. Whereas Bach is always trying to get out, and and I think that's what Lynch and Penretsky are doing with their pieces is they're they're just testing the limits. They're moving out of the 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 familiar human zones that we normally circulate in, in order to understand a situation that exceeds us. And that requires thinking, and thinking always means confronting the unthought, the unthinkable sometimes. So when the bomb exploded in 1945, the light of the bomb revealed a big nothing. It revealed the universe under the aspect of what we're calling absolute contingency. 
And the sight, the spectacle of this big nothing, this nothing that extends to the boundless reaches of the universe is a terrifying spectacle. It's a spectacle that provokes deep, deep fear. And like there have been any number of times in world history where the religious imagination has conceived the end of the world through the intervention of some god. But there's been no other point in human history where the end of the world has been grasped in, I guess, like a scientific way. Scientific rationality has given us a world picture of an objective truth that brackets and transcends individual human experiences, which we call subjective. Now, this objective truth ex transcends human experience, but it's also fully imminent, which is to say that truth resides neither with God or nor does it reside in some platonic world of forms. Where truth resides is in the material and measurable stuff of everyday life. There's no soul, there's no intelligence, there's no meaning beyond matter, at least so say those that we might call scientific naturalists or scientific materialists. It's the default metaphysics of educated persons in the West. When I say we, I'm not talking about, obviously, everybody who's listening to this podcast. I'm not talking about JF and me either, but we're talking about a kind of a worldview that remains a sort of a default. In any event... If the world ends in that world, that world, uh, that purely imminent world of material and measurable stuff, if the world ends in that world, then it just ends absolutely and forever. You know, the atomic bomb means mass death for real, the final death, the real death, that moment that we've all had where we've encountered the absolute non-negotiable limit of our own death. Except we're talking not about individual death, but we're talking about species death. And we're talking about the fate of the world. And that has only ever been grasped before in terms of aeons like the Kali Yuga and the turning of a great wheel back to the beginning. But we don't get any of that. There's no last judgment. There's no afterlife. And what we have is a kind of satanic inversion of last judgment where we have the arrow of time that goes thunk into the end of human history but without any kind of redemption, without theophany, without meaning, without any goal at all. And the scientific worldview gives us, as individuals, this idea of death. Like, when you die, that's the end. And that's hard enough to face up to. But now, death as the end, the too terrifying nothing of death, is to be encountered on a species level. And that is uh, terrifying. What nuclear mass death promises something very modern. Human death without human meaning. Death would come at random. Someone somewhere in the vast military industrial apparatus would screw up and push the wrong button or something and the missiles would fly. And you would never know, right? You'd never find out what it was that killed you because you'd be dead and so would everybody else. Uh... All you know is that you can die at any time with no warning for no cause that you will ever discover and your death will likewise not cause anything else to happen because all causality, all the affairs of human beings, all of that comes to a complete and eternal stop. And this is what I take to be 
the real meaning of that long Norman Mailer quote that I read at the, in, in the first segment of this show. And this, to me, is what we mean when we're talking about absolute contingency in the sense that the bomb unleashes the specter of absolute contingency. Right. And, and just to define that term, you know, contingency in philosophy at its most basic means a given object's potential to exist or not to exist. So in scholastic philosophy, a thing is said to be necessary, impossible, or contingent. A thing's impossible if its existence can't be thought without that thought being contradictory. Mm -hmm. A thing is necessary if its inexistence can't be thought without that implying a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And that was the basis for the famous ontological argument for the existence of God. And finally, a thing is contingent if it can be thought of as existing or not existing without contradiction. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is probably the most troubling book in the Bible, we read, the generations come and go, but the earth abides forever. But by earth, the author didn't mean planet earth the way we conceive it today. He meant something more like the ground of being, the, the kind of necessary framework in which human life unfolds and which gives human life substance. So humanity was contingent for the, the author of Ecclesiastes, but but it was contingent upon a ground which, for its part, wasn't contingent but necessary, uh, a kind of absolute. But it seems to me that what the Trinity explosion reveals to us is that even the earth is contingent. In other words, that there is no ground, that nothing, not even the conditions that need to be in place for there to be life, can be said to abide forever. You know, what led the Trinity was this great project we might call modern rationalism or just modernity. The idea is that reason can give us meaning, that reason can help us improve the world, and that it is, it is reason that makes us feel at home in the cosmos. But it's the very piecing together of dissociated knowledge that made up the rationalist scientific project that led to Hiroshima. So you can, you can see this if you look at the history of the invention of the atomic bomb. Like in a documentary I watched recently called The Day After Trinity, um, several physicists who participated in the Manhattan Project make a similar observation. They say that their first reaction on seeing the explosion in New Mexico was one of, like, elation. Essentially, they thought, man, it worked. We were right. Our scientific theories allowed us to harness the basic powers of the universe. I mean, you can't get better proof than a mushroom cloud. But then, but then a second thought came to them almost immediately afterwards. What have we done? You know, like what, what have we wrought upon the world? It's almost as though reason or rationalism had been a kind of dream state they'd been trapped in, a state in which they couldn't really know what they were doing. They couldn't see it from an external point of view. They were like sleepwalkers or something. And that, that reminds me of that, of an etching by Francisco Goya that shows a man asleep at a desk and you see these nocturnal animals swarming around them in the darkness. And the, the etchings called the sleep of reason produces monsters. It's usually been interpreted to mean that, you know, like when you don't have your intellectual faculties, hallucinations and superstitions come to the fore. But there's another interpretation that I think is more in keeping with Goya's work. And that is that rationalism itself is a kind of sleep that brings monsters into being, a kind of somnambulism where we lose touch with certain transcendentals that condition reason and give it, give it sense. So you end up believing that reason itself is the only transcendental. And a cold, calculating rationality takes the wheel and you're suddenly led down these paths to God knows where. 
you know, like all kinds of arguments were made as to why the atomic bomb had to be had to be built. It's really interesting to look at these rationalizations. For instance, they say, oh, Hitler's going to make this and we have to beat him to the punch. In other words, they envisioned the worst thing that a fascist maniac would want to let loose on on the planet and then assiduously went about making it happen preemptively. It's exactly like the last scene in Dr. Strangelove where Peter Sellers is trying to stop his arm from making the Nazi salute and like thereby revealing the totalitarian core of the American war, war machine. So there were all these rationalizations. We, we have to do it before the Germans do. Uh, the weapon will allow us to crush the enemies of democracy. Um, all these good uses will come of it, etc. But the next thing you know, what you've actually done is created humanity's most irrational invention, the nuclear bomb, a thing which serves no tactical purpose, has no useful function other than act as a sign of total destruction, has no conceivable positive application as a weapon, it is in itself an absurdity that will just orbit around us forever as a perpetual threat and a reminder of human folly and, as you pointed out, also of, of the absolute contingency of our existence. This is one of the interesting things about the bomb, from my point of view, is it marks a point of what Jung called enantiodromia. Right. Or we might choose a, a simpler word for it, re- reversal, as mm-hmm. in the line from the Tao Te Ching, reversal is the movement of the Tao. The idea is that anything pushed to its ultimate extent, to its furthest capacities and potentialities, will tend to reverse into its opposite. This is a really old idea, and it works in this context, this idea of enantiodromia, of rationality pushed to its absolute furthest extent. If you read an account of of, uh, the Manhattan Project, you realize what a titanic intellectual feat it represented. Um, it, may, it, was a, it was experienced by the scientists on the project as the greatest uh, challenge to and triumph of their reason. And yet at the precise moment of its fulfillment, it reverses into its very opposite, a kind of destroying irrationality. Right. There's a book very well known in um, kind of critical theory circles, uh, The Dialectic of Enlightenment by Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer which basically makes the argument that enlightenment with a capital E standing for the rational spirit in in our affairs is doomed to in a sense reverse into its opposite the i'm stating the thesis of the book very badly uh, and very reductively but it's also an idea that is shared broadly across a wide spectrum of cold war era social philosophy for right. example by eric Fromm, i think i think one of the things that adorno and horkheimer are trying to say is that enlightenment itself becomes myth and right. they're not using myth in a kind of positive uh, joseph campbell kind of way mm-hmm. I, I mean one of the things that they were having to deal with was the spectacle of an avowedly anti-modern anti-rational uh, regime the nazi regime that nevertheless was enabled by a very high degree of sophistication in science and technology. Right. And there's an evident contradiction there. How are we to resolve that contradiction? And their feeling is that enlightenment is this dialectical process of like, you know, extinguishing myth and in the process of so doing, creating a new myth and seeing this process of reversal is basically unavoidable. 
and like I said, this is something, this is a kind of a, a figure of thought that you can see broadly represented across a wide spectrum of intellectual responses yeah. to the, the nuclear age. Another example is Carl Jung, who argued that that reason is just one faculty among others, and if it's overvalued, then it, it, it overshadows the others, which remain active unconsciously. So if we don't make friends of the irrational regions of our souls, then reason will become a puppet to these forces that we refuse to recognize. And he, that's what he saw in Nazi Germany. He saw the, the sophisticated, rational machine of the modern state put in service of the most, the deepest, most irrational archetypal forces of the human psyche. And uh, he saw the rise of Hitler as the resurgence of Wotan in the, mod in the modern world, of this war god. But mm -hmm. to get back to what we were saying, it, it, the, the idea is that if reason fails to provide us with meaning, if, if, if reason just gives us the how of reality and not the why, then we end up in a state, in a kind of almost nihilistic state, the one that you described at the beginning of this segment, this abject nothing. And faced with that, we become, we fill up with fear and we mm -hmm. escape from this Darwin fear. Bosia. Right. We fill up, we f escape from this fear in the kind of charade world that we created po in the post-war era, which Baudrillard described as uh, the hyperreal or the world of the simulacra, this world of where we just live in constant representations and we, have, we relinquish all authentic relations to ourselves and to one another. Guy Debord, also the French situationist in the 60s, wrote a great book called The Society of the Spectacle about this particular phenomenon. I call it the spectral in my book because I think it goes beyond spectacle. It, it's almost, it's because it deals with the relationship with ourselves as well. So the idea is that we run, and what are we running from? Well, we're running from the fear. And David Lynch in Twin Peaks gives a name to this fear, as you just said, and that name is Garmin Bosia. And this fear is the substance that the demons in uh, Twin Peaks feed on, right? So what is Garmin Bosia? Why don't you enlighten us, Phil? Well, Garmin Bosia is translated in Fire Walk With Me, the Twin Peaks prequel film that David Lynch released about 25 years ago. In the subtitles, you can see these demons speaking in that weird kind of backwards way, uh, saying like, you know, Garmin Bosia, or someone says, I want all my Garmin Bosia, and you see it subtitled as pain and suffering, or pain and sorrow, that's right. what it is. Um, and it's really just this compound of pain and suffering, sorrow, and above all, fear. Mm -hmm. And that is what these demons feed on. It's represented as creamed corn, but the understanding is that every weird thing that we see and hear in the daimonic realm of Twin Peaks, that's not really how it looks. That's just how it looks to human beings because we have no... You know, conceptual apparatus to understand what these things really look like in themselves. So this cream corn, this Garmin Bosia, this is this food for demons. And one of the things that I think is kind of entertaining about thinking of this fear, this capital F fear we've been talking about throughout this episode, thinking about it as Garmin Bosia, one of the things you get out of that is an answer to the question that we are leading off with, which is like, did the Cold War ever really end? 
is there may be some kind of a cult narrative that we can fashion to account for how even when we're not scared of the bomb, we're always scared of something like the bomb. Right. I mean, right now, as we're recording this, everybody's nerves are on edge because Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un keep um, slanging at each other. But even if that wasn't happening, you'll notice that since the end of the Cold War, we've had this ever-proliferating list of existential fears, fears that all do the same thing as the atomic bomb. There are things that allow us to imagine this absolute contingency, the specter of death under the aspect of absolute contingency, and allow us to imagine it on a planetary scale. And so it's not just nuclear warfare, it's biological warfare, it's acts of terrorism, it's climate change, it's environmental crisis, it's super volcanoes, it's Donald Trump, it's whatever. It's, we have so many of these things now. Yeah. Um, that to the extent that I sort of like, I started fashioning this weird idea that, you know, what if the fear, this big F fear we've been talking about, is actually a demon? Like, just go with me for a second. I'm not saying I actually think it's a demon. I'm just saying it's kind of entertaining to think about that, right? So what if we imagine there's some kind of entity, some diamond, something like Bob or like Judy or something, and that entity feeds on Garmin Bosia, feeds on the fear and sorrow and suffering and pain of human beings who were caught in this impossible existential situation. Uh, in my series of blog posts, I, I made an, an analogy between it and the Elizabethan, I think it's an Elizabethan torture device, the, the cell of little ease. Yeah. Which is like cunningly contrived so you can't stand up but you can't sit but you can't lie down you can't you can't like get into any position and so it drives you insane with right. pain, you know you you're, you're you're in pain the whole time and you can't get comfortable like that's kind of what it's like we're on the hook bouncing from one uh, planetary extinction event fear to another to the extent that it's just like well what if there's some entity a diamond that Ultimately, it doesn't care about the bomb. What it cares about is eating well. Right. And, you know, it has this, the, with the explosion of the Trinity bomb, we just opened up a mile-long buffet for that creature. But you can't keep, you can't be scared by the same thing forever. So we got to keep, we got to keep switching it up. So just when you were maybe getting a little complacent, with the bomb. And I'll, I'll say, I mean, I was born in 1969, so I was like in the, you know, a teenager in the 80s. And I remember, you know, hearing my elders talking about atomic fear and just sort of rolling my eyes and being like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> because it's just like, yeah, that's what you always say. Yeah. But, you know, it's just like, oh, we didn't get you with that one. And we, maybe we've heard, you've heard a little too much about the bomb, but how about melting ice caps? Right. You know, how about something like Cormac McCarthy's The Road? Well, right. I can't look on that with quite as much equanimity, right? So they get me with that. And if I'm not afraid of that, then maybe they'll get me with something else. And the idea is like what's actually prior is like once we've opened up the possibility of that kind of ultimate level of fear, once that is brought into the world, once we open up that mile-long buffet <laughs> for those like interdimensional daemons or whatever that feed on this Garmin Bosia, 
that's what's driving this thing. That's why the Cold War never ended. Because the Cold War was only ever, as it were, the host of the fear. And once the Cold War dies, the, the, that parasite just moves on to a new host. Right. The thing we're calling the Cold War fear, that never went away because ultimately it doesn't really fundamentally have to be about the atomic bomb. What it's about is Garmin Bosia, about our pain and sorrow. Like we're being harvested for that. We're, we're like farm animals. <laughs> we're being milked for this food. Now, of course, I need to step back right away and say, like, ask the same question I asked of you in an earlier segment. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that there is some monstrous entity like Judy or something that is feeding on our suffering and sorrow? No, like I'm not suggesting that this is like, you know, something that we could test in objective reality. We could set up some kind of controlled experiment. Obviously not. But it's a way of thinking. I mean, one of the reasons to engage in this kind of technique of personifying complex ideas is suddenly they become more tractable. They become more understandable. And all I know is like, you know, I was going through this period once. I was just like, I'm afraid of everything. Like opening up the newspaper in the morning or like opening up, you know, Facebook or something is like this terrifying experience because like every day I'm being told of new ways that not only that I could die, but like everybody could die. And at a certain point I'm like, I feel like there's some kind of shell game, like a three card Monty game playing out here. And I keep thinking that what I'm looking for is the little P under the card, Right. Mm. Or I'm looking, or, you know, like, find the Queen of Hearts, and the three-card money operator is, like, shuffling the, the cards. And I'm, like, a rube who just fell off the turnip truck, and I'm, I'm at the Port Authority, and some hustler has hooked me into a game of three-card money, and I honestly think, I, I can find the P, I can find the lady, I can find the, the, the card. And actually, no, that keeps moving around, because the person dealing the game they only have one goal and that's to keep you playing i have a goal to find the lady find the p they only have one goal which is to keep me playing and keep betting right and at a certain point i was like hmm you know that's you know not a bad way to describe the sort of existential situation that we find ourselves in the proposition that there might be non-human entities that feed off of it. That, in any case, seems to be what Lynch proposes. It's also what William Burroughs proposed, and it's also what Lovecraft proposed mm -hmm. is going on. Now, you can say, are they just metaphorically describing human psychology? Are they the... Um, it's funny, because when you ask, do you really believe this? Um, I would never argue that such things are impossible. There's a I mean, it occurred while you were talking, the most obvious name for the creature you were describing is Satan, right? That's exactly what the right. devil is. The devil is the entity that feeds off of human fear and hate and pain mm -hmm. and, and the rest. So does the devil exist? Um, you That's know, does, does God exist? Does God exist? Because... There is still, it's, it's not that shameful today still to say, I believe in God. Um, a lot of very smart people believe in God. But then those same people will say, oh, it's ridiculous to believe in the devil. 
I don't believe in God as an absolute. I can only believe in God as a finite creature. In light this and this in light of what happened in, in a Trinity, because the problem of evil is you, you you're familiar with the problem of evil in theology. If God is omnipotent, omniscient, and all good, how can there be evil in the universe? And it's a question that has plagued theologians for a long time because they always assume that God is the absolute. What if God isn't an absolute? What if God is one daemon? And there are others at work in the cosmos. I'm not talking about metaphors here. I'm talking very literally. What if there are creatures that aren't human and that are very powerful and some of them are looking out for us and some of them are uh, feeding off of us? And what if God just happens to be a particular powerful entity that decided at some point in the past to root for human beings to help us? This is something Norman Mailer suggested in that brilliant quote you uh, you passed on to me, that what if God is not the all-powerful ground of being, but a being in the world? Like, what do we gain from thinking this way? Heidegger, thinking about our modern predicament towards the end of his career, in light of nuclear holocaust and all the rest, he said, only a God can save us now. He didn't say only God. He said only a God. A, mm. God is, a God is not the ground of being. A God is a being in the world. An alien being that hopefully has our best interests in mind. And it seems to be, to, to me, to be the only way forward for religious thinking in the future. And um, just to finish up on that point, like there's this, uh, William James shared this opinion, or at least that's where I got it. You know, that's got, he kind of lit me up to mm. this. And he wrote a little something that I'll just read quickly. Um, he says, first of all, I must parenthetically ask you to distinguish the notion of the absolute carefully from that of another object with which it is liable to become heedlessly entangled. That other object is the God of common people in their religion and the creator, God of Orthodox Christian theology. Only thoroughgoing monists and pantheists believe in the absolute. The God of our popular Christianity is but one member of a pluralistic system. He and we stand outside of each other, just as the devil, the saints, and the angels stand outside of both of us. I can hardly conceive of anything more different from the absolute than the God, say, of David or Isaiah. That God is an essentially finite being in the cosmos, not with the cosmos in him, and indeed he has a very local habitation there, and very one-sided local and personal attachments. If it should prove probable that the absolute does not exist, it will not follow in the slightest degree that a God like that of David, Isaiah, or Jesus may not exist, or may not be the most important existence in the universe for us to acknowledge. I hold to the finite God. So, hmm. this is an interesting thought, and this is exactly where Lynch goes with the fireman in the series. Yeah, the character of the fireman. Right. Who we knew in the first season as the giant. Right. The fireman is... And we is discover the, he's called the fireman later. Right. The fireman, I, I say fireman, I just hear it that way instead of fireman, but the, 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 as, as like a firefighter. But the fireman mm -hmm. is the, uh, the being who somehow is, is trying to help the FBI agents vanquish Judy. And he he mm -hmm. fails in the end because in the last episode yep. there seems to be, does not succeed but he's trying, and 
our only hope is this is that some powers that are greater than the human exist that we can petition in order to find our footing again in what has become a groundless world. This was very much Norman Mailer's idea of God, and you alluded to a quote from Hip, Hell, and the Navigator, which is an interview that Mailer did with Richard Stern and reprinted in advertisements for myself. In it, he says, um, I believe Hip conceives of man's fate being tied up with God's fate. God is no longer all-powerful. He exists as a warring element in a divided universe, and we are a part of, perhaps the most important part, of his great expression, his enormous destiny. Perhaps he is trying to impose upon the universe his conception of being against other conceptions of being very much opposed to his. Maybe we are, in a sense, the seed, the seed carriers, the voyagers, the explorers, the embodiment of that embattled vision. Maybe we are engaged in a heroic activity and not a mean one. Yeah. And what he says later on is that for him, this is the only possible explanation of the problem of evil that you just described. And he says the answer may be, quote, that God himself is engaged in a destiny so extraordinary, so demanding, that he too can suffer from a moral corruption, that he can make demands on us which are unfair, and he can abuse our beings in order to achieve his means, even as we abuse the very cells of our own body. And what that shows is like this idea of a limited God means a God that can make mistakes. This is a God that is, whose victory over the forces of darkness is the furthest thing from assured. It's as contingent and chancy as our own encounters with one another. And the same things that we're prone to, corruption of our own, uh, of our intentions, of our values, those things can happen to a finite God as well. And so I think for a certain kind of religious mind, the idea of a finite God is no consolation whatsoever. So would you say the finite God is like, that's what we're left with in the post-Trinity age? Like that's as good as it gets for us? Is this like a consolation prize? Or is there some hidden attribute or feature of a finite God that actually might give us some kind of hopefulness or some sense of being able to engage in this battle with evil? I, I think the b belief in a finite God, uh, whether you understand it symbolically or literally, is the only way to justify hope. Because if the transcendent absolute God, if that postulate is the case, if that is the case, then the world, there is no room for hope because it's the God that allows all that shit to happen and to exist. So it's the old nominal, you know, nominalist versus realist uh, argument of the scholastics in the Middle Ages. The idea is this, like that which is good, is it good because God says it's good? Or is it good in itself, and therefore God is constrained to believe that it is good? Right? That's the classic theolo theological question, and the philosophers of the Middle Ages ask themselves. Because if God is constrained by the good, then God is, in a sense, finite. If God is constrained, there are arguments against this, by the way. I'm just kind of caricaturizing, you know, just drawing a little sketch of it. But the, 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 the stakes mm. are this. If, if God must do good because good is good— 
then God is constrained by some kind of moral law. If God just decides arbitrarily that X, Y, Z is good, then there is no good in God. God just made it up. Like a finite God is basically like a bigger, stronger, maybe better version of us, but it's still recognizably a version of us, right? What you're talking about is a God of a polytheistic uh, worldview, right? Right. And like the gods of ancient Greece or the gods of the Germanic pantheon, Photon and Loki and all the rest of them, like as it's often been said, they're kind of like us. They cheat on each other and they, they screw around and get drunk and get in fights, you know, just kind of like human beings. They're like human beings, only more so and only like more powerful. And so I think one of the standard complaints about polytheism is that it presents a moral view that is just basically not that much elevated from the world that we live in. If you want transcendence, if you look at this world as a mass of folly and insanity and cruelty and hate, which, let's be real, it is, then how are you going to respond to that? Well, one response is, I want to believe in an entity that isn't prey to all those things. I want to believe in an entity that has nothing to do with this human world of suffering. And so the idea of an omnipotent, omniscient, all-good God, a capital G God, is like it's an expression of this desire for transcendence, for getting away from the merely human. Whereas a partial God, a, a finite God, is ultimately not going to give you that. The, you know, the finite God is, like us, prone to error, uh, prone to lapses of judgment and lapses of character. As you say, the fireman at the end of Twin Peaks, The Return, appears like the plan that he appears to have hatched out with Briggs and with Cooper, like that seems to not have worked. He screwed up. The fireman, uh, the fireman did not do what we want of a god, which is to redeem us and deliver us, which is, I think, one reason why so many Twin Peaks fans had such a lot of problems with the way the ending worked out. Mm-hmm. And yet you're telling us that actually this is all that we have to hope for. This is as good a, good a hope as we've got. So why is that? I, I think that, like, how would I... I, I, I think that the thing about the fireman and the thing about the God that's described in the Old Testament who transform into the God of the New Testament, and I'm not, I'm not saying I, I don't... This is a particular idiosyncratic view of that God, but I think they're, they're parallel. Mm-hmm. Listen, like a finite God can still be huge. It could be just short of infinite, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's constrained to do good, and it might fail because it's finite. However, it believes in the good, and it believes in truth and justice and beauty. Um, mm-hmm. So the, uh, the idea for me is that either the game is rigged, in which case morality itself is kind of nullified at the level of the divine, or the divine mm-hmm. itself is subject to some kind of transcendent moral law that he is trying or she is trying to enact and to bring into being. 
And I see this in, uh, that seems to be what's going on in the Bible. If you read it just without all the contraptions, all the stuff that's floating around, if you just read the book, it's not the story of an omnipotent ground of being revealing itself. It's the story of a finite God trying to make the world good and failing and failing until finally he himself must incarnate as human in order to fail again, right? Because the world didn't become right. good after him. But there's this uh, this weird attempt for, the, for some forces in the universe to transform the cosmos into something that resembles uh, the true, the good, the beautiful. There's a really good book by Jung called Answer to Job, which is kind of taking that stance. And to me, that's what hope is about. Hope, because if, if hope is just hope, I hope to wake up from the dream of the world and realize that it was all just a dream and that everything's honky-dory. To me, that's a form of nihilism in a way, because it's, yeah. it's denying the realities of this world and it's denying the realities of the suffering of this world. So how do we honor the reality of suffering? Right? How do you look as mm. how do you look at the rib cages of the children starving in the Ukrainian famine caused by Stalin? How do you look at those protruding rib cages without coming to the conclusion that they're just ripples in the mind of God? I don't know. I would I would say with Lynch here that we have to just like Cooper at the end fails but continues the fight, even though Laura remains trapped in that eternal suffering that she seems to be fated to exist in. Cooper continues the fight. He doesn't give up. His last lines are, what year is this? He's still trying to figure out. He's still trying to fight. So maybe it's not winning the war against evil that matters so much as keeping up the fight. And maybe that's the definition of hope. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>